On this episode of China Unscripted, China is at war with the United States, and the U.S. is funding it. What can you do to get your money out of China? Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Chung, and I'm Matt Ganesha. And joining us today is Frank Gaffney, founder and president of the Center for Security Policy, as well as vice chairman for the Committee on Present Danger China, and host of the show Securing America. Frank, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, you have no idea what a pleasure this is for me. I have been a huge fan of China Uncensored for years, and uh, anything I can do to contribute to what you all do is uh, not only a, a privilege, but it's a real honor. So thank you for having me. Oh, I really appreciate that. We're off to a great start, I think, on this podcast. <laughs> uh, well, okay, so let's talk uh, big pitch picture for a moment. Uh, you've compared China to the Soviet Union as an, an existential threat to the United States. Why do you say that? Well, truthfully, if I've said it, I'm wrong because hmm. it's a vastly bigger threat than the Soviet Union was in its heyday. And uh, nobody's done a better job of documenting the reasons why than China Uncensored, but to enumerate a few key points. Uh, one is that the Chinese Communist Party not only shares with the old Soviet Communist Party um, an ambition to dominate the world, uh, enslave it as a practical matter, but has put into place, tragically, with enormous help from us, the means by which to do that. So for decades of an unrestricted economic political information, technology, and subversion warfare, some of which the Russians engaged in and the Soviets, of course, before them, uh, but not on a scale, not with the skill, not with the impact that the Chinese Communist Party has. But now we're watching put into place a combination of a global empire and the military with which to project from it power truly on a worldwide scale that the Soviets in their heyday, again, could only have dreamt of. So in all of these respects, um, the degree of penetration of our country, the magnitude of the effort made to subvert us both externally and from within, and now the means to do so from, well, by some estimates, over 140 countries, in addition, of course, to China itself. Um, these are, they dwarf what uh, the Soviet Union was able to do um, at the peak of its Cold War activities. And so a comparison, I, I think, is misleading, except to say it's much worse. Well, so the United States definitely was aware of the threat of the Soviet Union. Do you feel Washington is a, feels the same way about China? You know, until very recently, and again, you guys have been part of trying to help educate the rest of us about why this has been a mistake. But until very recently, uh, the formal government position of the United States has been the Chinese are not our enemy. The Chinese are our competitors, perhaps, or worse, are our partners. 
and everything we can do, we must do to try to make that partnership work. Uh, And if it's exploitative of us, if it uh, hollows out our industrial base, if it creates supply chain dependencies, if it otherwise puts us in a terribly disadvantaged position, not to worry because they're not our enemies. They're our partners, and uh, the world will be one unbelievably prosperous, happy place if only we engage with the Chinese on their terms, basically. I think it's not a coincidence that some of the scales have been dropping from our eyes thanks to the fact that I believe we've been subjected to biological warfare by those so-called partners. Um, And as a result of that, in part, and also the cumulative effects of most of this nonsense not working out, hollowing out our industrial base has destroyed uh, much of our economy, has created the Rust Belt, um, expropriating our technology and using it uh, against us, um, both in a competitive sense in the business sector and increasingly uh, likely in a military sense, is not a good idea. The extent to which they have been um, penetrating and, as I say, subverting virtually every institution of our country, from our culture to our media to, uh, as I say, the economy, uh, to our research institutions, to uh, academia, to uh, not least our political system. That's not working out either. So all of these things taken together have, I think, caused people to realize that we actually are dealing not only with an enemy, but the most mortal, dangerous enemy in the history of this country. And that's the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, the 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 engagement uh, philosophy of dealing with China really has persisted. Like, you know, in the old days, it's like, oh, we have to work with China to curb North Korea. Today, it's we have to work with China for climate change. Or, you know, most recently, it's we have to work with China to stop Putin and curb Russia. And, and still North Korea, by the way, we've got to have their help with that, too. I mean, it's, it's no limit on the stuff that uh, we theoretically can depend upon this mortal enemy to help us with. And, and Chris, you're absolutely right. It, it, it persists, especially in the business sector. And this is one of the places that I have found uh, most alarming and and deeply frustrating is the financial part of the U.S. business sector, which has been sluicing, by some estimates, as much as seven or eight trillion dollars of our money, our pension funds, our 401k plans, our mutual funds, our Um, exchange-traded funds, uh, indexes, and so on, have been migrating in in unbelievable quantities to underwrite the buildup of this enemy of our country. And the determination of people like Larry Fink of uh, BlackRock and and Ray Dalio, uh, Straight Street, the, the vanguards, the fidelities, and so on, their insistence that they have to continue to do this makes engagement not just sort of a, a, a dangerous notion. It is a, I think, treacherous, if not downright treasonous, obsession being used to our great uh, peril and uh, extreme disadvantage. 
When you said, Frank, that, you know, more and more people are waking up to the threat of the Chinese Communist Party, what do you see happening in the business sector? I mean, obviously, like you mentioned, Ray, uh, Ray Dalio and Larry Fink, these are, you know, China cheerleaders, China bulls to the end. But are are you seeing any type of awakening among other people in the financial sector? I, you know, I think so. Uh, it it seems to me that it's more outside of Wall Street than in the part that's dominated uh, by those masters of the universe, as we're told they are. Um, I, I think that uh, financial sector um, interests that are not part of uh, Wall Street but are closer to the sentiments of the American people are beginning to evidence an interest in uh, disassociating themselves from China, recognizing that it is not either in the country's interest or even in the interests of their clients. Uh, I, I'm I'm encouraged by a colleague of mine who has a uh, a new venture. It's actually been underway for some time, but it's uh, now becoming uh, part of the Liberty University curriculum. It's called National Security Investment Consultants Institute, NSIC Institute. Uh, Kevin Freeman is its uh, proprietor. And it's designed to try to help financial managers who are now either hearing from their clients or have in their own right come to the conclusion that investing in our enemy, as opposed to investing patriotically, is probably a bad idea on, as I say, several different counts. And I'm of the view that as that um, training becomes available, we're going to see more and more people in the industry, as well as the people that they manage money for, uh, saying, you know, we want to do things differently. Another, another place where I think this is manifesting itself, too, is the growing perception in business writ large, not necessarily the uh, financial sector specifically, but business writ large, that the kinds of supply chain dependencies that have been a hallmark of this so-called engagement policy uh, are, well, perilous for their own business interests. Uh, They cannot sustain a just-in-time strategy for providing um, chips or flat screens or stuff that requires rare earth minerals uh, and the like, if they require all of that stuff to come from China and much more, of course. So I think you're starting to see people uh, reflecting in their business decisions um, some policy shifts with respect to engaging in China. And, and it needs to happen on a much broader scale and, and much more rapidly, frankly. We make a good point that, you know, our supply chain is deeply dependent on China. But so what would you suggest is the solution for that? It can't be quick or easy to break our dependence on China. Well, it may not be either, but it has to be done because our dependence on China gives that mortal enemy uh, a means of essentially finishing off what's left of our economy, as you know. Um, I, I think there are measures that uh, that have begun to be adapted. Uh, some of them are simply creating uh, manufacturing, production, and the rest kinds of capabilities here in the United States. 
Um, but what people are doing, I think, in increasing numbers is also looking to other countries outside of China where they might be able to get um, relatively low-cost labor and productive capacity online more quickly than they can in this country. Uh, I'm not as enthused about that as I am just onshoring it uh, fully here, but uh, it as a stepping stone to getting those supply chains back here, I think it's a necessary step. And, and can I just say, I, I had a fascinating conversation. You mentioned kindly our uh, television show, uh, Securing America. I had a very interesting interview the other day with Ross Kennedy. I don't know if you've uh, had him on uh, China Uncensored, but I encourage you to do so. He's a logistician and uh, sort of strategist in the supply chain space uh, that uh, has been working in the food industry in particular. And and I think, again, unbeknownst to most of us, we are now unbelievably dependent upon China for another supply chain, uh, in addition to medicine, which I should have mentioned earlier, which is also insane. Um, food um, products, uh, food, uh, finished food in some cases, but also the uh, ingredients for making food and the feed for the animals that we rely upon for food and the fertilizers that we require to grow our own crops are, uh, to varying degrees, dependencies that we have on China as well. And uh, as as Ross pointed out, there, there are basically three things that you cannot rely on anybody else for. One is potable water. Another is food. And the third is energy. And to the extent that we're doing uh, at least uh, the second and third with the Chinese, uh, this is reckless in the extreme. So you're saying we at least have water? Well, we do at the moment, but with the rate that the Chinese are buying up land, uh, and I assume water rights as well, uh, that may even be imperiled, if you can believe it as well. Well, also with, uh, you know, massive pollution from China, we can also, you know, that'll eventually have an effect on our water supply as well. Well, you know, it's worse than that. And and again, I think you've focused on this over the years, but it's um, it's not well enough known that one of the facets of the Chinese agenda, and I think it was most uh, directly spoken to in a famous speech uh, given to party cadre back in the 2002-2003 timeframe, I believe, by Qi Haotian, who was the then defense minister of China, talking about in his own right, but also by reference to Deng Xiaoping, the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party back in the early 1990s, as talking about the agenda of the Chinese not simply being dominating the world, not simply recognizing that they have to get rid of the United States in order to do that, but that they seek to do it in a way that depopulates the United States so that they can colonize it. So that to your point about the horrible environmental damage they've done to China, um, the impetus for finding areas of the world where they can still grow things, where they still can find potable water, where the air can still be breathed, in which to relocate parts of their population is a, a particularly chilling reason to be 
urgently rethinking these ideas that uh, we can safely engage to say nothing of enrich and empower and embolden the Chinese Communist Party. Well, that sounds like the the plot to like every alien invasion movie where they conquer one planet and then they take the resources and destroy it and then move on. And now they're coming for Earth. Yeah. Well, I, I'm fond of, it's not, you you know, my uh, my insight, but I, to your point, this is the Borg that we're dealing with, uh, you know, sort of Star Trek fame. This is a monster of truly horror film caliber uh, on a uh, operating on a scale that uh, most of us can't imagine and with a determination to achieve its ends that is well horrifying yes why do you think the american public is largely unaware of how big the threat and danger is i think it's because despite your best efforts and and folks like uh, me and our committee on the present danger of china and a few others uh they've been incessantly told not to worry by the people who they assume know what they're talking about. Look no further than the Biden administration. And this is worth a show in its own right, and I know you've done them, but the extent to which we are continuing to hear from President Biden and members of his team that the Chinese Communist Party is not our enemy, and let me make the distinction that I think you guys often make, that it's, it's not all the Chinese. Uh, it's, it's the party. It's the leadership of the party, most especially, that is our determined um, and relentless enemy. You're not going to hear those words pass from Joe Biden's lips. Yes, he might talk about them as competitors or uh, you know, a, a challenge or something, some euphemism, but enemy, no. So what's the public to think other than that, well, the people who are responsible for assessing the nature of this challenge, this, uh, this uh, competitor, surely know what they're talking about. Well, for one thing, we're getting a short course as we speak about the degree to which whatever Joe Biden thinks about the Chinese Communist Party, what he says about the Chinese Communist Party seems to be a product of his being deeply compromised by the Chinese Communist Party. Um, what we're learning from the sort of forensic dive into the entrails of Hunter Biden's laptop being led now by Jack Maxey and uh, others that he's sort of uh, browbeaten into following suit, including now, amazingly, the New York Times and the Washington Post, is that uh, it isn't just Hunter Biden. It isn't just Joe Biden's brother or other family members. It's the big guy himself who has been on the take from China. So is it any wonder that he is not telling us the truth about the danger it poses? I think not. Is the public alive to that just yet? I, I'm not sure. But as I said earlier, I think that they are deeply now suspicious in their own right, because let's face it, I think just about every single one of us has had our lives touched in one way or another by this so-called COVID-19 pandemic. So all of that is operating here, I think, Chris, and, and to the extent it is, I think even if we're not being told the people by the people who are responsible for 
alerting us to these dangers. Um, there's now a sort of grassroots up movement building that says we cannot rely on China. Uh, we cannot rely on people who have been suborned by China. We have to stand up. We have to prepare ourselves. I hope the next step is we have to get on what I've long believed is needed, namely a war footing. Well, the Chinese Communist Party certainly has been open about its interest in biological warfare. And I think we can say, like, regardless of what is or isn't in the Hunter Biden laptop, all we have to do is look back to uh, what Senator Joe Biden was saying uh, back in 2000 about, uh, you know, China joining normalizing trade relations with the United States. He was pushing a point of view that was pretty common at the time that, you know, what Bill Clinton was pushing, yes. that we need to engage with China. And it would be nice to hear at least some awareness that, hey, that was a bad deal. Can I give you a more recent example of the problem, which in sure. a way was considerably worse? In May of 2013, Joe Biden was responsible for helping to engineer a memorandum of understanding between the United States and the government of China. The purpose of which was to give the Chinese Communist Party's front companies, and I use that term advisedly because whether they're state-owned enterprises or whether they're nominally in the private sector, they're all doing the bidding, as you know, of the Chinese Communist Party including, by the way, not a few that are owned and operated by the People's Liberation Army itself. The point of the Memorandum of Understanding was to give them all access to our capital markets. I mentioned this a moment ago. But the point that's particularly problematic and that makes the point we're talking about very dramatically is the terms of that memorandum of understanding not only gave these companies access to the investment funds of American investors, they got that access on actually preferential terms. These Chinese companies did not have to submit to or conform with our statutory or regulatory requirements for transparency or accountability giving them, of course, an advantage over our companies in these markets, but more to the point, giving them an opportunity to sell their stocks or actually stocks in offshore companies in the Cayman Islands, which actually meant that your investment was not in the company itself. Um, companies in some cases, they're actually frauds. Not, not sound investments, but losing propositions. Something else happened, interestingly enough, a little later in 2013. And that was that Joe Biden went to Beijing in December of that year with his son Hunter on Air Force Two with him. And before Hunter left China, as you know, and as is documented in his laptop, he scarfed up 1.2, I think, originally, and ultimately $1.5 billion from the Chinese Communist Party. Some of my friends say, that wasn't a bribe. That was a commission on somewhere between one, three, maybe as much as seven or eight trillion dollars worth of money 
that migrated to the Chinese Communist Party as a direct result of this memorandum of understanding engineered by Joe Biden and money used, ladies and gentlemen, for the purpose of building out and underwriting and otherwise enabling the unrestricted warfare of the Chinese Communist Party against us. Uh, There's never been, I think, a bigger betrayal of our country than that, and it persists to this day. I mean, we've covered the issue of Hunter Biden's business deals in China, and specifically that deal that he made with, um, you know, at the time, Devin Archer and Christopher Heinz about, you know, investing in a vehicle to help essentially Chinese state-run companies uh, do business in places like the Congo. Um, And there are very weird things about it, like um, when we had Christopher Balding on to talk about, like, why would they even need a foreign company to come in with uh, the Chinese state-run company to fund other Chinese state-run companies? Um, there are definitely strange things about it, but I don't know that we can like we can draw a direct line between um, that business deal and um, you know signing that memorandum of understanding to allow Chinese companies to list on U.S. capital markets. I, I fully respect that you may not be able to draw that connection. I am, and I'm saying I think it's not just you know post hoc propter hoc. I think it's cause and effect. And why not? Because the value to China of what Joe Biden did in that regard, and I think probably in myriad other ways, you've covered handsomely, for example, his taking a dive completely on the uh, construction by the Chinese communists of bastions in the South China Sea. I mean, essentially, he was the point man assigned by Barack Obama to go stop that from happening and certainly from having those militarized. He completely failed, abjectly failed. The Chinese got away with it and are now fully militarizing them, as you've documented. Does that have something to do with his uh, son's earnings, Uh, a very substantial portion of which, um, some say 10 percent, others say, according to Hunter Biden himself in a letter to his daughter, 50% going to the big guy. Is it proof positive? I don't think so, but I think um, it's certainly grounds for a formal investigation, a criminal investigation, perhaps by a special prosecutor, if not by the United States Congress, into the extent to which the president of the United States has been personally and deeply compromised by our mortal enemy, the Chinese Communist Party. Well, I think, you know, at a very minimum, there's a lot of Wall Street uh, interest in investing in China. And, you know, Wall Street as a whole, as you pointed out, they sort of see these dollar signs and you get, you know, Larry Fink and Ray Dalio wanting to put money into China. And so there's that very strong pressure, which has existed during not just during the Biden administration, but existed during the Trump administration, during the Obama administration, during the Bush administration, during the Clinton administration, going all, going all the way back to, to try to make sure that there were opportunities to put those American dollars into China 
with the promise of strong returns, uh, which we maybe haven't seen, but I'm sure they'll come any day now. Yes, but the, trust me. The, the, the point is, uh, I, I do think that there's just been this very um, substantial pressure over decades to merge the two economies. And that pressure comes from, even though it's a very, very tiny minority of Americans, namely the you know, the, the masters of the universe, as you call them, although I'd, I'd reserve that for, for He-Man, but, uh, you know, those people pushing it, right? And that, but that tiny minority is what's pushing government policy. Yeah. Well, I, I want to credit Tom Wolf for uh, popularizing that turn of phrase to apply to these guys. But you, look, your point is very well taken, but let me clarify something. I'm not sure how much return the average American investor has gotten out of uh, these transactions over the years. Um, I think some have done very well. Uh, there's clearly been some hugely successful Chinese uh, IPOs on Wall Street and the like. But I've been told um, by people in the know that if you actually look at it over all those years, uh, it may be on the order of 2% return on investment, which is trivial. Who has made money by the gajillions, of course, are the Larry Finks and the Ray Dalios and the Steve Schwartzmans and others, the people whose fees and commissions and other transaction uh, you know, uh, benefits have, have accrued enormous wealth to them. And hence, no surprise that they're insistent on continuing to put the rest of our money into uh, these entities. I'm simply saying that where we find ourselves today, and again, I salute what you all have done over the years to make this case, is at the receiving end, whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we even recognize it or not, of unrestricted warfare by an enemy who makes no secret of their determination to destroy us. And what does that make people who are helping, aiding, abetting the enemy that poses that danger? And whether they do it under the rubric of a policy that long since ceased to make any sense at all of engagement, or to use the phrase that was used with the Soviets back in the day, detente, or whether they're just doing it, you know, nakedly out of uh, calculations of individual self-advancement, uh, it's unacceptable. And it must stop, in my judgment. Well, speaking of uh, China and the U.S. stock market, uh, something that's been happening under the Trump and Biden administration is we've seen more and more Chinese companies get kicked out of the U.S. stock market. Do you think that is a step in the right direction? I do, and uh, not enough have been. Uh, not enough of them have been put on the entities list or uh, identified in other uh, lists by the Pentagon or the State Department. But it's it's a start, uh, Chris. What we've seen is um, Xi starting to try to manipulate his own stock market in such a way as to uh, bring these companies out of ours so that they can't be kicked out of it. It's the old, you know, you can't fire me, I quit kind of <laughs> angle. Um, bring them back to China and then sell what are called A shares 
that are issued on Chinese exchanges back into American markets, um, a totally unregulated and essentially, you know, uh, flanking maneuver to continue to get those investments coming out of American uh, indexes and the like, uh, despite the fact that uh, we no longer permit them to be operating here, or the Chinese have decided they won't let them be operated there. So what I'm saying is basically this. There's an old expression attributed to Vladimir Putin, excuse me, to Vladimir Lenin, Putin's uh, predecessor. Vladimir Lenin is said to have remarked at one point, the capitalists will sell us the rope with which we will hang them. I don't know if he actually did, but it's certainly a practice that they aspire to. And it's one that has been taken to a whole new level by the Chinese Communist Party. They have figured out that with their engagement with old friends, as they call them, on Wall Street in particular, they will be able to get the capitalists to finance the purchase of the rope with which they will hang us. And this has to stop. So you think uh, the Trump administration, the Biden administration, removing Chinese companies from the U.S. stock market really is just helping China create its own uh, insulated system that's uh, immune to U.S. sanctions? No, no, to the contrary. I think it's a necessary step. Don't get me wrong. I think it's long overdue. I wish the Biden team were doing as much as the Trump did and more because it's required, honestly. We, we ought to be saying full stop to these investment houses, you are not to invest in our mortal enemy through any of its corporate fronts. Uh, it's, it's not acceptable. Don't do it. And if necessary, I would suggest that we designate the Chinese Communist Party as what it is, a transnational criminal organization, which would put every single one of these companies on notice, and by the way, other businesses as well. If you are enabling, aiding, abetting, empowering, all those words I used a moment ago, any of these companies and the CCP itself, you are at risk of being an accomplice to transnational criminal activity. And I think that will help cause many of them to say, you know, we're not going to do it. But here's my point, Chris. If they take these companies back to China and try to raise funds for them through what is essentially a back door, these so-called A-shares, that's something we should stop too. And I think that we will have an effect very like that that ultimately brought down the last communist totalitarian communist party and government that sought our destruction, that of the Soviet Union, by really cutting off much of their cash flow. I mean, the Chinese Communist Party absolutely sees itself at war with the United States. It's, it's an unequal footing that the United States does not consider itself at war with China. Well, I think right? one thing that'll be very interesting that's coming up is, and this has to do with that 2013 memorandum you were talking about, Frank, is the SEC is supposed to be ruling pretty soon on whether these companies, these Chinese companies who are allowed to not submit audits to the SEC and other U.S. regulatory organizations, whether they will have to delist um, for not doing that. And I think this is something that started under the Trump administration, that there started to be pressure on these companies um, because essentially they were able to, for a while, use um, auditing firms in China to submit 
audits, but then the auditing firms, the U.S. auditing firms that were operating in China said, we actually can't see a lot of these documents because the Chinese Communist Party considers them state secrets. No, that was the point of the uh, of the memorandum of understanding was to make that kosher, and it and it obviously isn't. I, you know, interestingly, there's a there's another piece of this. Uh, I give a lot of credit for Donald to Donald Trump for having started saying, uh, not only shouldn't we have um, this disadvantageous trade with them, and therefore we should be putting tariffs on uh, a lot of these Chinese goods that are being brought to this country, but he also said we oughtn't be underwriting, uh, particularly these People's Liberation Army companies. Uh, we oughtn't be putting U.S. government personnel, including military personnel's investment funds, their, their pension funds, into companies building equipment with which to kill them, for example. But there was another step that was really important uh, before the SEC decided that they would take any note of it, all of this. Both houses of the United States Congress unanimously adopted legislation that said, you know, we're not actually going to allow this to continue. This sweetheart deal and this flim-flam with accounting and, and non-transparency. The only catch was that they said, we'll give the Chinese companies three years to conform, three consecutive years, no less, which meant there was all kinds of running room for you know, uh, playing games with this. It remains to be seen whether the SEC will actually step up to the plate on this. Uh, they've sent some, I think, positive signals of late, but they need to end this practice. Uh, you either fully meet our accounting standards uh, at a minimum, and more to the point, it seems to me, we should not have companies working for our enemies in our stock market available for capital investments by our investors, most of whom, by the way, are unwittingly having their money put into this purpose. I do feel like for the average American person, this is something that they feel pretty helpless about. Um, you don't have, if you have a pension, you do not have any uh, control over how that pension invests their money. It really has to be something that the U.S. government steps in on. Well, yes and no. I, I think the government should do it. It's It's got a responsibility to do it. I mean, again, think about this. Uh, what other war have we fought in which we have ignored the fact that our people are helping pay for the other side's involvement in that war? And this may, this may shouldn't become a shooting war, as, as you sort of indicated at the beginning, Chris. But we've, we've taken an initiative here. It's, it's still early days, truthfully, but uh, our Committee on the Present Danger China, and people can find out more about it at presentdangerchina.org, has begun uh, developing what we call our Mad as Hell campaign. And you remember the old uh, network movie in which the guy gets up and says, I want you to go to the window and I want you to stick your head out and I want you to say, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Well, that's how American investors should feel about the fact that, as you say, Shelley, they, they may think they're helpless, but nonetheless, uh, increasingly, they're learning that their money is being used to imperil them, their families, their communities, and their country. And they should be mad as hell about it. We've offered, uh, as an immediate step, just simply a directive to your financial manager. Get my money out of China. 
the National Security Investment Consultants Institute I mentioned a moment ago is another way to get your investment manager or your pension fund manager, for that matter, equipped to understand it is important to you and important to the country that you invest patriotically, not in our mortal enemy. So this is a, a work in progress. I encourage our listeners to uh, to look for more coming shortly in that regard, but they don't have to feel helpless. They don't need to be helpless. There are pressure points that I think they can um, use to move the needle, and certainly they ought to be encouraging their government to help them do it. That's that's very interesting. I think that's a really interesting idea. Um, what would you say that people who you know, work in a corporation, they have a 401k that's invested in maybe Fidelity or, you know, Vanguard, one of these, but they're not really in charge. Like they can't directly go to the fund manager and say, well, I would rather not have my money um, in China. What would, what, what could people do? Look, I, I think actually they can. I, I think it may, it may seem as though, you know, you're just one person in a large corporation with, you know, vastly more money than you personally have in their pension fund. But if you sign, for example, this directive and send it to your financial manager, the, the pension fund manager, and 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 you go to, um, I don't know, your shop steward, if you're in a you know manufacturing facility and therefore have a special interest in not having the Chinese hollow it out, or any other kind of uh, corporate entity, uh, your colleagues, uh, your, your, for that matter, you know, um, other family members who are going to be beneficiaries of, uh, of this pension fund, perhaps. Get them engaged. And, and look, the simple truth of the matter is this won't stand the light of day. If we can do nothing less, nothing else, but get people focused on talking about and well, raising hell about what is being done with their money, without their permission, without, in many cases, their knowledge. I think you're going to start seeing people, at a minimum, being offered an alternative, an ex-China alternative, as they say. Will it be as, as remunerative? I don't know. My guess is it probably will, especially with what's going on in China at the moment with uh, you know, you know, bubbles bursting in their real estate market, and uh, and the shenanigans of the government with respect to their uh, some of their favored, um, uh, you know, corporate entities, and an awful lot of other problems. Which again, you guys do a superb job of uh, of chronicling. It's a better bet, I think, to bet on the United States than on the Chinese Communist Party. Well, to your point, Frank, uh, you know. Back in the, I guess the '80s, there was the, there was a campaign to divest in South in South Africa because people didn't like apartheid, and you know, to a large degree, that divest campaign took money out of the hands of the of the apartheid government there and led to, you know, the a major change in that system and the leadership of Nelson Mandela and. And so obviously South Africa is a small country. I mean, Americans are, are more willing to divest from a small country than from a giant country that controls so much. But, you know, th there are people who are doing it. I mean, no, we I had, don't think we're less willing. I just think it's it's harder. It's harder. But, you know, we, we had on the podcast, we had on the podcast before um, Perth Toll, who's has the, what's called the Freedom Index, FRDM. And that 
is a it's an ETF. Um, it's it's an ETF that has they call it a freedom weighted index, and so they look at like emerging markets, but they don't weight them in terms of you know the size of their economy like most emerging markets indices do. Uh, this this index uh, looks at at freedom with the idea that that a country that is more free may appear to have slower economic growth year on year, but it's also less likely to have those major crashes and dips that you see under authoritarian regimes because those authoritarian regimes can often have major regime regime change. Like, you know, look at, uh, at Myanmar slash Burma, right? I mean, you have regime change after regime change uh, after regime change, you know, within a decade. And that kind of thing is a, a big financial risk, despite what appear to be good short-term growth numbers. And so- Well, I think it's a great idea. I, I'm, I'm rather big on the point that in addition to possibly being a better investment bet over time, if, if, those, if those governments that are on higher up the freedom scale are trying to kill you, that ought to be an attraction for an investor as well, don't you think? Yeah, maybe, you know, but there's always investors <laughs> well, like I taking really risks. Hope so. <laughs> risk with your life is one thing. Risk with your money is another. I'm I'm not sure the yeah. first applies. I mean, I, I have absolutely, you know, no morality. So I have no moral problem with investing in China, but it's a it's a really bad safety investment. You, you know, wouldn't it's be a, associated with this show if you had no morality. <laughs> I've, I've been secretly trying to, you know, take money from the Chinese Communist Party for the show, but they they refuse to sponsor us. So I've just I've just been doing a very bad job, apparently. And I hope the rest of the team would refuse to take the money, even if they would. I've often said I'm totally willing to sell out if they, but no one has no one has ever attempted. <laughs> I hate it when I do that. But this is this is a very cru crucial point because you know the Chinese Communist Party has obviously spread a lot of money around. There's been a lot of elite capture. Uh, you know, the American people can't depend on like, you know, the government coming to save you. It really needs to be a, uh, you know, led by the people. That's correct. Campaign. I mean, I do think that you see if there is enough um, grassroots type pressure that you can make the government um, take notice of things that they may rather not. Do. Well, yeah. and, and to go back to the South Africa example, that is a case in point. That that was not a government-led initiative. Uh, my old boss, Ronald Reagan, was uh, in favor of constructive engagement, as he called it, with South Africa and fought tooth and tongue to keep going and, and help the government there evolve over time. The, the popular sentiment would have none of it. And that's what we need now. Uh, no question about it. We have an opportunity, I believe, with young people who now, I think, as then, are very concerned, if not necessarily about all this you know, financial business or maybe even other aspects of this unrestricted warfare, mostly, I think, because they're simply not aware of it. But they've become pretty familiar, especially in the wake of uh, those uh, Winter Olympic Games in Beijing, with genocide and the oppression of human rights, which again, I, I salute you guys for the wonderful work you do to expose it. But especially to the extent you're reaching an audience of younger Americans who feel passionately about human rights, there's a whole nother reason 
not to be enabling a regime that not only treats its own people so terribly, but aspires to do the same to the rest of us as well. And we ignore that fact, again, at our extreme peril. Yeah, I mean, the problem with all these, uh, all the slave labor is that's, you know, slaves just don't have the eye for quality that we're looking for. Yeah. <laughs> or, much, or much of a voice either, for that matter. Yeah, yeah I true. like the joke that you make on the show sometimes, Chris, about, well, it's not really a joke as much as it is a pointed commentary on why would you trust a regime that uses rape as a form of torture with your money? Yeah. yeah. Or Among other else. forms yeah. of torture, by the way, yeah. and 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 genocidally uh, to boot, and and the one of the other things, I, if I could just commend to you all um, and your audience, is uh, a report that we did, uh, produced by a, a, a sort of project of our committee on the present danger, China. We call it the Captive Nations Coalition. And I think you may have been talking to my colleague Sehun Kim, who who works at with us, but. One of the things what we studied was the extent to which the Chinese are really making huge inroads, as I think I said at the opening, in spreading their model around the world under the guise of this so-called Belt and Road Initiative. And what they've done to the people in East Turkestan, uh, what they've done to the people of Tibet, what they've done to the Southern Mongolians, what they're in the process of doing to the Hong Kongers, and aspire to do to the Taiwanese, among others, is now inexorably moving forward in these countries that have become increasingly captive nations through these payday loans and uh, the other arrangements that the Chinese have affected. Again, I'm sure, underwritten at least in part with our money, uh, when they make these uh, financial arrangements that uh, seduce uh, we talk about elite capture governments uh, or even populations to get the infrastructure of their dreams from the Chinese, uh, only to find that it turns into Chinese infrastructure, Chinese instruments of control, Chinese social credit system enforced domination, and power projection that will be used to threaten the rest of us. These are the sorts of things that, again, I think the more the public is exposed to it, and at the risk of just shamelessly flogging what you do, I can't thank you enough for not only telling these stories, helping bring this kind of information to a large audience, but doing it with humor, which has an effect that uh, most of us who just treat it very, very seriously, which it is, um, fail to appreciate is powerful in terms of getting people's attention, getting access to their thinking, and hopefully encouraging them to take action in response. So again, hats off to you all. Well, authoritarian regimes love to be laughed at, as we always say. They sure say. do. They've got a great sense of humor, don't they? <laughs> uh, it's killer. <laughs> oh. It is a killer. Ah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, it, it it makes me feel good that you know even my sense of humor is marginally better than authoritarian regime sense of humor. Uh, I don't know. Yours is also pretty killer. Yeah. The more you make them uh, miserable uh, rather than laughing, the more you're, I think, accomplishing the mission. I sometimes just picture Xi Jinping sitting alone in Jonan High, looking at. You know, the photoshops of him as Winnie the Pooh and seething. Right. 
<laughs> that's what you do in your spare time. Yes. You picture that. Yeah. I picture what I'm going to build in Minecraft. Yeah, yeah. Well, you could build Jonan High in Minecraft, and I then could. you know, yeah. But I think some really positive takeaways from this uh, this podcast is that you know there are things individual Americans can do. They can talk to their pensions. They can change how they invest. And I know not everyone watching is doing that because our generation is has no money. Um, <laughs> thanks to, thanks not a, to lot a lot of, of these. Not a lot of investments. Issues. I mean, what do you think Dogecoin's exposure is to China? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> well, hey, it's its biggest factor, Elon Musk. Tesla has is incredibly dependent on China. Yeah. Elon Musk seems very smart about a lot of things, but the China thing. And this is a good example of how everything folds up on each other. You know, high gas prices. Oh, everyone's like, oh, okay, we got to buy a Tesla. Well, Tesla feeds into China mm -hmm. and we screw ourselves at every corner. Not in the fun way. Well, and uh, as you know, the, the the whole Green New Deal ties into China. And uh, the idea that we're going to choke off uh, fossil fuels to the benefit of the Chinese is uh, just one of those other ways in which this engagement thing is not going to work out for us. Well, when you have the vast majority of uh, solar panels and wind turbines being manufactured in China, which, by the way, is a result of largely U.S. technology being knocked off, uh, especially the especially the wind turbines. So instead of instead well, of stolen, really stolen. Well, yeah. So in, in, instead of instead of, you know, extracting and refining, uh, you know, gas and oil from the United States, we're basically now this idea is to get the uh, way to produce energy from China and pay for it to bring it here. Uh, but that stuff, you know, typically doesn't have a particularly long lifespan and also is dependent on the supply chain issues, which we're seeing major problems with, is dependent on rare earths, which involves slave labor, um, yeah, you know, et cetera. The solar panels, right? A lot of the mm -hmm. ingredients to make solar panels are produced in um, areas where there is Uyghur slave labor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, you know, Frank, uh, uh, thank you again for joining us today and talking about these things. Um, why don't you tell us again, uh, you know, the different websites where people can watch your show uh, and, you know, the Committee on Present Danger, where where can they go to see And the yourselves? Mad as Hell campaign. Yeah. Sure. Well, there's uh, there's a number of them. I, I won't probably um, pass them all along. The key one, I think, is um, uh, presentdangerchina.org, our committee's uh, website. Uh, the Mad as Hell campaign has its own, but it, it can be found there as well. Um, I would argue that uh, if you would take a look as well at our shows, including one featuring you all at uh, securingamerica.tv is a further resource that um, I hope your audience will take advantage of too. Great. Well, thank you for joining us again today. This was a real pleasure and you're very kind. Thank you. Well, thanks for all you do, and I look forward to further interactions with you on both uh, your platform and mine. Sounds good. God bless you all. You know, I think the biggest takeaway from this podcast is really that this there are things individual Americans can do. And I think, you know, you were mentioning that there's, there's a feeling of helplessness, like, oh, it's so big. What can I do? Yeah. I mean, I think on a systemic level, there are things that the U.S. government has to do, mm -hmm. right? Like... The um, if the SEC, you know, rules that these Chinese companies have to delist, that is going to be major because otherwise, it's not like you'd get the Chinese companies un 
unless from China they made them delist. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like this has to be a government level thing. But on an individual level, there are things that you can do. Well, I mean, we have a representative government, so we can pressure our government to do things. Like in 2020, there was the defund the police movement, which got widespread support and protests across the country. And like people protesting itself doesn't do anything except what it actually did is it pressured police departments or a lot of, um, in, in particular cities and counties to reevaluate how and whether they wanted to fund police departments. And I'm not saying, you know, it's whether you agree or not with the defund the police movement. I think you have to recognize that it had tremendous people power. I, I don't know if that's the best example to give since now a lot of places are refunding the police. Yes, but my point is that the, the, the people stood up and said something and the government ignored them. Yes. That too can happen with China. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your analysis, Matt Ganeza. <laughs> well, I laughed so much I hiccuped. Okay. Well. All right. Um, so on that message of hope. Uh, is, isn't there a message of hope? Chris, I, I, th there was until you, you you said we're a representative government and the government won't listen to our protests. Well, uh, well, technically, you said that. Well, yeah, they get it. Yeah, Shelley, you, you were trying to. Uh, I was save trying this to save it crash. somehow. Um, save it, please. <laughs> you know, my grandma had a jacket like that. Um, thanks. I'm sure your grandma was a woman of great taste. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. Um, that's you, you totally wrecked it, Chris. This plane has been totally derailed. Uh, the... <laughs> oh, no. So I'm going to hiccup again. <laughs> wow. Thank you for joining us on this episode of China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelly John. <laughs> and I'm Matt Canesta. Get your money out of China. Thanks for, thanks for watching. Bye-bye.